Lord, open our minds that we might understand the Scriptures. Open our eyes that we may behold the risen Jesus. Open our lips that we may speak of him. Amen. Amen. And pray be seated. And in your Bibles, uh, if I could ask you please to turn on to the first reading that we had from Richard. And this was 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and it's page 1159 and 6 in those church Bibles. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 from verse 7 onwards, and uh, page 1159 which is going to be the focus of our next few minutes together. But I wonder if you've heard the story about Billy Jones. Billy didn't want to get out of bed one Sunday morning. His mum kept calling to him, Billy, get up now, or you'll be late for school. I'm not getting up, moaned Billy from underneath his duvet. I don't want to go to that rotten school anymore. Billy, said his mum, give me two good reasons why you won't go to school. Okay, replied Billy. I hate them and they hate me. Now, you give me two good reasons why you think I should go to school. Billy, said his mum, you're 38 years old. And you're the head teacher. (laughs) And that's perhaps just a little bit like how the Apostle Paul must have felt about visiting the church that he had had founded in the city of Corinth. It was a lively but a deeply troubled group of Christians. Some of them had got some very odd ideas about the final resurrection of the dead even though they knew full well that Jesus is, was, and is risen. Um, There had been some serious moral lapses that really can't be talked about in polite company on a Sunday morning. Some people there had started mounting vicious attacks on Paul's character. And then to top it all, some teachers arrive in Corinth with a back-to-Moses campaign. Enough of Paul's newfangled gospel, they say. It'll never last. The law of Moses has been around for hundreds of years. Let's go back to Moses. And all of that worry might well have driven poor Paul to the edge of despair. And certainly not made him not want to come out from underneath his duvet he might well have said, blow the lot of you, I'm off to Spain. And yet Paul refused to give up on them, and he refused to lose heart. In fact, this very section of his second letter to the Corinthians, I say the second that has come down to us, because there are probably others, this section of the letter overflows with confidence. In verse 6 of this chapter, he says, God has made us competent. In verse 12, he says, we are very bold. 
And then chapter 4 and verse 1, he says, we do not lose heart. Now, what is the reason for Paul's confidence? Is he like Julie Andrews singing, I have confidence in me? No, this passage makes it very clear that Paul's confidence is not in himself. It is in Jesus Christ and in the surpassing splendor of the good news that Jesus himself is and brings. The old, the law of Moses, was indeed glorious, but the new, the gospel, is exceedingly glorious. Consider with me how Paul contrasts the old, the law of Moses, with the new, the gospel of Jesus Christ. First, the old was engraved in letters on stone. You see that in verse 7. But the new is written on people's hearts. Of course, when we think of the law of Moses, we think especially of the Ten Commandments. Now, when the Ten Commandments were given to Moses, they were engraved on two hunks of stone, not so very different from those stone plaques there at the front of the church on your left. But the Old Testament prophets themselves looked forward to a time when God's law would be written on people's hearts. Jeremiah prophesied and, says, and said, the time is coming declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. But what does it mean to have God's law written on our hearts? Well, it means doing what God wants, not simply because we know we ought to, but because we want to. It means worshipping God, not just with our lips, but with our whole lives. It means loving him, not just in appearance, but in reality. It means serving God, not simply in our own strength, but in the power of his Holy Spirit. Truly, the new is more glorious than the old. The old being engraved in letters on stone, but the new written on people's hearts. But now secondly, the old brought a verdict of guilty, but the new pronounces us not guilty. You see this in verse 9. Condemnation versus righteousness. Guilty versus not guilty. Although the law of Moses promised life to those who keep it, no one, in fact, does keep it. We do not love and serve God with all our heart and strength and soul and mind. The law can tell us that we have a problem before God, but it can do nothing to solve that problem. Imagine going to a doctor, and all she does is tell you that you're ill. Well, yes, I thought as much, that's why I came to you. But how do I get better? Sorry, next patient. But the law is excellent 
at showing us our disease, but again prescribes no treatment, offers no cure. For that, we need the new. We need the gospel of Jesus Christ. Again, as the prophets foresaw, by his, with his wounds, we are healed. Or as we sometimes sing at Easter time, there was no other good enough to pay the price of sin. He only could. So once again we see it. The new is more glorious than the old. But a third way in which the new is more glorious than the old is this. That the glory of the old was fading away. But the glory of the new lasts forever. Do you see that in verse 11 especially? When the Ten Commandments were given to Moses on Mount Sinai, there was glory. There was thunder, lightning, earthquakes, dense clouds, blazing fire, a deafening trumpet blast. And Moses' face shone with dazzling brilliance. The whole thing was indeed glorious. But verse 13 of our passage tells us that it was all fading away. It did not last. But the glory of the gospel does not fade. It lasts forever. The glory of the gospel lasts to this very day. The gospel is still the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So then, if glory attended the giving of the law that was chiseled in stone and resulted in a, victory, in a verdict of guilty and was fading away, how much more glorious must be the ministry of the Spirit, which is written on people's hearts, leads to a verdict of not guilty, and lasts forever. And now let's look together at verse 18. And we who with unveiled faces all reflect, or as I think maybe it should be, uh, slightly more accurately, gaze on, all gaze on the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. You see, as we gaze on the glory of Christ and his gospel, we're being changed by it. We're being transformed by it. What does this transformation look like? Perhaps it's better illustrated than explained. Dr. Don Carson tells of a time when an elder Christian said to him, Don, let's meet together to pray. So they met up the following Monday evening. Now, it so happened that Don had that very day received a letter from a young woman whom they both knew. Her name, we'll, we'll call her name June. June's life had been one big unholy mess. She had suffered all kinds of abuse and hardship, but not long before she had been converted to Jesus Christ. She had turned to Christ and her life had been turned around. A few months later, she found that she had cancer and she had only weeks to live. And she sent Don a letter. The letter was full of anger and bitterness. Why is God picking on me? 
Finally, I get my life in order, and then God does this to me. So the question was, for Don and his friend, what do we pray for? God bless June? Well, that's a bit vague. God rebuke her for her unbelief? Well, that's not very kind. God heal June? Well, yes, you can certainly ask for that, but as a favor, not as a right. They decided in the end to pray like this. Lord, you have promised that if you begin a good work in someone, you will complete it. We believe that you have begun a good work in June. Then please keep your promise. That was Monday night. Later that week, Don received a letter from June. She had written it Tuesday morning. The letter said this, I can't tell you what happened, but I woke up this morning and everything has changed. I'm so sorry I wrote that first letter. How could I talk of God that way when he sent his son to die for me? In a few weeks, I'll see him. And do you know what? I'll see him before you do. If he wants me in heaven, it can only be for my good and for his glory. John Wenham was a Christian minister and a scholar. After he retired, he was driving home with his wife after speaking at a university Christian union. And as he drove along, a lorry driver who was drunk crossed the carriageway and hit their car. John Wenham's wife was killed outright. John Wenham woke woke up in hospital uh, the next morning in the next bed to the lorry driver. And do you know what? He led him to Christ. Those two people on the road to Emmaus were transformed, weren't they? Their minds were opened so they could understand the scriptures. Their eyes were opened so that they could recognize Jesus in the breaking of the bread. Their mouths were opened so that they could tell others of what they had seen and heard. The Apostle Paul was transformed so that he could continue his Christian ministry with the, Christ, with the Corinthian church without losing heart. June was transformed so that she could face serious illness with peace of mind. John Wenham was transformed so that he could share Jesus in the teeth of personal tragedy. And what about us? Have we had that veil lifted from our eyes so that we can see the truth, see our need of a saviour, See Jesus as the answer to that need? Well, if we have, then may we all, who with unveiled faces gaze upon the Lord's glory, be transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Amen.